to open them to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians 4, and I want to do something a little different to what I would normally do. Normally, we, we do pretty strict exegesis. We just walk our way through a passage. I really want to use this verse as a launching pad uh, for us to uh, talk about uh, the subject of the day. And what I, what I want us to look at is, um, I was thinking about you as students, as you are uh, coming into adulthood. I, I want us to think about how do we think about the world in which you are entering into? How do we think as Christians? How do we think as the people of God? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. If you'll stand with me, it sort of helps me, calms my nerves, everything else. Philippians chapter 4, we just want to read one verse. And then we'll pray. This is your chance to stretch. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, uh, if there is in any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask for the same things every time we gather to open up your word, uh, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your kingdom and glory, our ears, that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth, that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves to one another in love and to this lost and dying world and to our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ, that our entire being be transformed by the God that we believe in. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. And be seated. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do me a, just, just a favor here this morning. I'm going to say some things, but what you cannot do under any circumstance is to tell your art teacher I said these things. Is that, is that an agreement? Are we in agreement to that? Do not, under any circumstance, tell her what it is I'm about to say. Here it is. This is, this is between us girls. Okay, you ready? Modern art is terrible. We, 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 we agree on that. I mean, modern art is... is, is hold those applause. You, you know, this, this, uh, uh, <laughs> modern art is awful. It is absolutely terrible. Now, I joke about, about not telling my wife. She, she and I agree on this, and, and that, that there is a clear change in where art has been going for, for uh, several decades now. One of the things that we like to do, because when you marry an art teacher, you, you sort of have no choice, but whenever we travel, uh, we go on dates. I like to take her to an art gallery, art museum, stuff like that. And uh, we always have the same conversation. Just modern art is just absolutely terrible. And recently, we went to the art gallery or art museum at the University of Kentucky, go Cards. And, and we, we'd gone several times before, and uh, uh, so we thought, you know, they, they, they changed the displays uh, every once in a while, so let's just go again. So we went, and we had the same experience that, that we had. And, and I wanna show you a picture that we took from that art gallery of me, jokingly, looking at a real piece of art. There it is. That is a, that is a fake plant sitting on the ground. That's the art display. No one left that there. That wasn't. That didn't drop out of anyone's pocket. That is me pretending like I am uh, mesmerized by this beautiful work of art. And so I thought for fun what I would do is I would make my own art. And so if you go to the next one, that's me with my hat on the ground, same pose. Right. You tell me what is the difference between the one and the other. And of course the difference is, is, is I don't have a little plaque next to my hat saying this is art. It explains everything with it. I really struggle with knowing exactly what is the difference between, between these, these two displays of a supposed 
art. Um, well, there's a video my wife and I have watched on this subject before, and it's of an uh, art professor who, uh, his first day of, of art class, Art 1, and he's got freshmen and sophomore coming in, and, and he puts a, a, a photo up on the screen. If, if Mr. Douglas, you'll put it up there. And, and he says, what, what do you think of this work of art? And, and, and the, the students will, will give essentially the same answer every time. That is a bold statement. It is mesmerizing. It is innovative. And, and these sort of words that they made up that they, they stole off TikTok. And, and then he zooms out and he reveals what it actually is. It is his painting apron. <laughs> that they confuse splashes on a screen with arts. Come to find out it was just a used painting apron. Like modern art is bad. But of course, it isn't just paintings that we're talking about. All forms of art right now are terrible. Uh, I'm a child of the 90s. Judge me if you want to, but we were the cool generation. I know we were the cool generation because all your movies are from my generation. You realize that, that virtually every major movie releasing this year in 2024 will either be a remake or it will be a sequel. And the original version that the sequel is coming from is itself a remake. Not too long ago, I remember I was looking at the, 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 the movies that were available. We were going to take the family out to movies, something like that. I was looking at all of them. I thought I was back in 1995. And I thought... When did Sonic become cool again? Are we still watching Turtles after all these years? You know, it's, it's, it's everything. There, there's, there's nothing new. It's, it's like we've lost the ability to, to tell new stories and, and compelling stories. Uh, oh, our music is terrible, too. Again, I'm, I'm going to be judgmental. I'm a child of the 90s. Our music is better than yours. We, we, we could have hard rock on, 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 uh, playing on the radio, followed by Britney Spears, and it was glorious the way that we had it. Now, music has been overrun by autotune and the millennial whoop. If you don't know what that is, Google it, and you'll see, see what it is I'm trying, uh, what, what I'm saying. But how is it then that we've gone from the Sistine Chapel to splashes on a canvas? How is it that we've gone from Mozart to Taylor Swift, if I can just add the dig in there? The answer, I believe, is worldview. The answer, I think, is theology. Bad art is a symptom of cultural decay. Culture is downstream from the God we worship. If we get worship wrong, if we get our theology wrong... Everything else downstream from that gets wrong. Paul states in Colossians 1 verse 17 that Christ is before all things and in him he holds all things together. Which means that if we pull away from Christ, we're pulling away from what holds us together. And as a result, what we must do as, as a society is that we are trying to choose between chaos on the one hand and Christ on the other. And unfortunately, we are choosing chaos. So, so, so how do we think about these things as Christians, particularly as you enter into this broken world as, as young adults? I want to share with you what uh, Christians have discussed for 2,000 years. Uh, we never discuss it as, as, as uh, churches, and we don't really talk about this much, and that's really to, to our great shame. Um, and these are known as the transcendentals. The last slide, Mr. Douglas. These are the true, the good, and the beautiful. I want you to grasp, if you get nothing else, I want you to grasp these three things. The true, the good, and the beautiful. That we stand and fall on these three things as a church, as Christians, and broadly as a society. There's two things I want to state about the transcendentals. The first is the transcendentals are tied directly to the divine. 
Uh, that, that, that a right understanding of God helps us to understand these, uh, these transcendentals. Years ago, there was a late night comment by the name of Jay Leno, which makes me feel old that I have to explain to you who he was. Um, and uh, what Jimmy Fallon is now, Jay Leno was then, but just better and funny. And, and Jay Leno had a, had a, 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 a little uh, skit that he, that he would do called jaywalking. Basically, what he would do, you've seen videos like this on YouTube and whatnot, where people go out and ask simple questions, like what number is red? And then, and then, then they, they would give you know, some answer, and what should be an obvious answer, they, they can't come up with. It's a way to make fun of dumb people, basically. And so Jay Leno's going out there, and, and he, had, he had a very simple question. The question was, how did Mount Rushmore get there? Okay, that's the question. How did Mount Rushmore get there? And he goes up to, to a lady, asks the question, puts a microphone in, in, in front of her, and she starts to think about it. You shouldn't have to think about something like that. She's just really, she, you know, really, you know, I'm not really sure. Then she goes, oh, oh, I know, I know, I know how it got there. Okay, what is it? She goes, erosion. Erosion. But Jay Leno's thinking, what in the world? What in the world? Erosion? She goes, let me get this straight. You think that after uh, uh, hundreds and thousands and millions of years, through chance and weather and climate and rain and wind and, and everything else, that four faces uh, were carved out inside the mountain. Not just four faces, four recognizable faces. Not just four recognizable faces, but four faces of politicians. Not just four faces of politicians, but four faces of politicians in the nation that they would once lead in. And not just four recognizable faces in the nation by which they would, they would lead in, but four presidents of the United States. Not just four presidents of the United States. Four of the most, uh, of the best presidents of the United States. You mean to tell me all that came about by erosion? She thought about it again and said, well, I don't know. Just luck, I guess. Of course, that is nonsense. What you have here is, is someone who hasn't really thought about the nature of truth. Although it may sound like a strange question, where does truth really come from? Can I make it up? Is it only knowable if I can look at it under a microscope? Do feelings and intuition trump facts? What about goodness? How do I know if equal justice or civil rights or human dignity are beneficial and worth defending? How do I define and understand justice, rightness, morality, and proper values? Is it tradition? Is it cultural wins? Is it personal preferences? Is it Darwinian evolution? The transcendentals are theological conclusions whose source is God himself. That is to say, I can't know truth without knowing the one who is truth. I can't know goodness without knowing the one who is good. I can't know beauty without knowing the one who is beautiful. Let me see if I can prove this biblically. First of all, we can look at the true. God is truth. In the Gospels, Jesus claims for himself to be the way and the truth and the life. That means that the more acquainted we are with the divine, the more acquainted we, we, be, we are with the truth. There's a reason why during the uh, early enlightenment, when science was really beginning to rise in a very Christian context, that the earliest scientists, most if not all of them, were, were Christians, particularly the more famous ones. And, and they understood that their discoveries enhanced their understanding of, of God because all of truth was, is really traces its genesis back to our creator and redeemer. And so this is why you'll find Isaac Newton, as brilliant as he was, he, he wrote more about theology than he did about science. Johannes Kepler, the same thing, wanted to be a theologian, but went into science because of the particular giftedness he had. But as he discovered the mysteries of the cosmos, he stood in awe of the God of the cosmos. They, like so many of us ever since, 
have discovered through the sciences in the discovery of the truth what it is that the psalmist discovered in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his, his handiwork. Notice already right there you have truth mixing with beauty that whenever we look up at the sky and we are mesmerized by, by God's creation, we discover the truth that God is our creator and the beauty that he is the divine artist. All tied together right there. Thus, closeness with God brings us closer to the practical truth and godly wisdom. The opposite is equally true. Rebel against your creator and, and the redeemer and you will choose a life of foolishness. I've been in ministry long enough and I have noticed a pattern that we humans tend to follow for. I don't know how many people who are searching for love, but end up pursuing lusts. And wonder why they can't find love. How many people are searching for contentment, but pursue greed and wonder why contentment always seems so far away? How many people are searching for rest and yet pursue drama and wonder why they're always so exhausted and lonely? How many people search for peace, yet pursue addictions of all sorts and wonder why they never found peace? You know, idolatry has a funny way of betraying us. If, if we trace the true to God, we must trace the good to God. In Mark chapter 10, a man runs up to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember what Jesus does? He says, pause for a minute. Um, what do you mean by good? Only God is good. And if you read the narrative, what he's, what he's leading the guy to conclude is that the man of whom he is speaking to is the good God. So, so Jesus ties goodness to the divine. And so the ultimate good is, 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 the, uh, is to come to the source of our righteous, good, good God. This is why theology and divine revelation shape our morality, ethics, and policy. We would agree that equal justice is good. We would agree that human rights are good. We would agree that racism is bad. But how many of us can actually explain why those things are? Because you grew up in a culture that told you? Because, because your parents taught you? Because you saw a video on it on TikTok and in 15 seconds you were convinced? What makes these things good? What makes things bad? Maybe, maybe it's Darwin and evolution, but then again, it, is, it, it teaches the, the morality of survival of the fittest. And there's no room for equality there. Tyrants and tribes throughout all of human history have long sought domineering power. How do we know that these things are good? But if good stems from the knowledge and worship of God, then rebellion against him will lead us down a path of chaos, violence, and pain. You can't know goodness apart from the righteous God. Finally, there is, of course, the beautiful. It is to our great shame that we Christians have downgraded beauty. And I'm saying this as a Baptist whose walls are as white as, the, as, as like best-selling paintings who are blank, right? I've, I, we, we've done jokey videos at the church before. Uh, we call them the church office. And uh, we did one where the rapture happened and it's just me and the deacons left behind, stuff like that. And uh, one of them I like to do is to take a blank frame put it up on one of our white walls and pretend it's art. So as a way to make fun of blank canvases, but uh, that's funny to me, maybe not to you, but, um, uh, but we churches are guilty. If you go to an old cathedral and you walk in, you get a sense of awe. It's because they took art seriously. You go into the average church now and all of that's been stripped out. And this is really a, a, a problem I think, think that we have because at the root of our theology is the understanding that God is a divine artist. He didn't just create a practical world. He created a beautiful one. 
And so the closer we get to the divine, the more we grasp beauty. In fact, if you read your Old Testament, you won't find the word beauty very often. It's there. And in an effort of the translators to, to grasp what it is that the original writers are saying, the word that we translate beauty is actually the word glory. That is to say that the writers want us to see that if we want to grasp what is Beautiful. We need to grasp the God who is glorious, the God who is majestic, the God who is honorable. This is our understanding of beauty. Let me see if I can give you an example of this from the Bible. Remember the Old Testament, the Israelites are out in the wilderness and they need a house of worship, but they're, they're nomads, they're traveling around. And so they have to build a fancy tent and they call it the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle had to be several things. It had to be practical. You had to know what door to go in on Sunday morning or for them Saturday morning. It had to be functional in that it, 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 you had to be able to tear it down. You had to be able to put it up. You had to be able to move it, all that sort of stuff. It had to be durable. Maybe you're going through the wilderness. And, and so it, it's, it's got it's to it's gotta survive on more than just duct tape. Okay, It's got to be durable. But perhaps most importantly, it had to be beautiful. Had to be beautiful. Why? Because beauty reflects God's glory. So when you would enter into the tabernacle, the closer you got to the heart of the tabernacle, the closer you were to the presence of God. And you could tell by the work of art that, is, that was associated with it. Moses, and we have the guy's name, Moses hires an artist. He is to carve things. He is to design things. He is to decorate things in such a precise way so that when they encountered the tabernacle, entered into God's presence, you were in awe by the scenery itself because we associate God's glory with his beauty. Now, as we fall away from the, design, from the divine as a society, we will lose the sense of beauty. We're watching, really, as a godless society exchanges beauty for the profane, the sacred for the shallow, the holy for the ugly, the orderly for the chaotic. This isn't just in our art or in our music or in our films or architecture. It's true in our marriages. It's true in our families. It's true in our ethics, our policies, our schools and our holidays. Is each of these then, the true, the good and the beautiful, are tied in our knowledge and worship of God. And, to, and, and we cannot know them without first knowing God. But let me tell you the second thing about the transcendentals I want you to get. Yes, they are tied directly to a right knowledge and understanding of the divine. The second thing I want you to see is that they are inseparable. That is to say you can't choose your favorite and run with it. You, you get one, you need all three of them. They, they, they are a team. They, they are a family. We need them. See, now, so, so growing up, I think I can illustrate this for you. When I was growing up, I loved apologetics, still do. I find, I find the, 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 the art of defending and promoting the faith a fascinating subject and, and have learned from a lot of people. And, and what we were taught growing up is if you have the right answer, people will come to faith. And so what I could do and can still do is I can give you a dozen reasons why I believe Christ was risen, risen bodily, historically from the dead. And I can walk you through it. Even if you, you said, okay, you can't use the Bible, I can still give you several reasons why I believe historically Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Right? And, and, and then the goal would be that if Christ is risen from the dead and you adopt that as fact, then you will see that Christianity is true and you become a good Christian. I can sit here and talk about how to address supposed contradictions in the Bible and, and how to handle these difficult passages and, and how to deal with these difficult apologetic questions that, that come up in discussions of theology, philosophy, and faith. And, and we, the goal was that if you give the right answer, if you promote the right truth, people will come in, into the truth. And that did work for a while. Our students went to Southeast uh, uh, this Sunday evening to listen to Lee Strobel speak. And Lee Strobel was one of those who was an atheist journalist who, who, who wanted to, to prove that God didn't exist. 
craziness and Christianity was false, but in the end, discovered it was true and has become a lifelong follower of Jesus. I grew up reading Strobel, grew up reading Josh McDowell, whose story is, is, is very, very similar, and, and others like that. Because we understood that if you get the truth, then, you, then, then the faith will come along with it. Your generation is the opposite of that. But you'll notice what my generation is, is we, we put truth above everything else. Your generation is putting goodness above everything. Can, can I prove it to you? Let's say I got a Gen Zer right up here, and I said, "Look, you know, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He, he died on a Pontius Pilate, and I can prove this historically. I can prove this biblically. I can prove this uh, uh, across the board." And, and, and a Gen Zer could look at me, and a millennial, young millennial can look at me and say, "With all of that being true, Christians hate gay people." Just like that, truth went out the door in favor of a perceived understanding of goodness. See how easy that was? It's no longer about what is factual. It doesn't matter if it's historically accurate. What matters is my view of goodness. I have separated the inseparable. Just as my generation made the error of putting truth above goodness, I see a rising generation putting goodness above truth. And what you get as a result is a lot of ugliness. A lot of ugliness comes out of that sort of approach. And so we have exchanged truth for feelings, and we're wondering, wondering, left wondering again, what do we do with the good? And this frames our debates over gender and race and climate, the role of government, family, marriage, ethics, morality, and everything else. This is why we call each other nasty names uh, all day long because, of, of, because we're confused as to what is true, good, and beautiful. And what is lost in all of this is a sense of real, genuine beauty. Not just in our art, but in our lives. Because truth without goodness is cold. Goodness without truth is volatile. Both are profane. Perhaps right now, some of you are living in a home that is confusing this. You're living in a home that is, it doesn't have the true, the good, and therefore you've lost the beautiful. Maybe your home life is driven by rigid rules about masculinity and femininity and rules and traditions and expectations. The truth is apparent across the board. But what you feel is a lack of goodness and mercy and love. And you're left perhaps here right now and no one knows about it. A sense of loss. And what you're missing is the beauty of home, family, of love. Or maybe you're in the opposite situation that, that, that your family is a loose coalition of people who are driven by their passions and desires. And as a result, there's no order or certainty. What you too are missing a family who understands and benefits from beauty. Just look at our art. Look at our families. Look at our society. We have long rejected biblical truth. We have long uh, been confused about what is good and right and holy. And as a result, there is nothing sacred, lovely, or holy. Well, it's not enough just just to diagnose this. We, We sort of have to come up what it is that we do with this. My favorite writer and, and favorite guy to quote, honestly, because he's very quotable, is without a doubt C.S. Lewis, 20th century uh, Christian who went from atheism to Christianity. Um, my favorite quote from him is from an essay called His Theology Poetry. It's in the book called The Weight of Glory. I'd recommend um, the book to you. It is this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. 
You, you see what Lewis is saying there, that, that it isn't that I believe in Christianity because of the facts. It's because that because of Christianity, I can see more clearly everything else. This is a hint of the true, the good, and the beautiful. The story of the gospel is one by which the God of truth makes himself known in the person of his son. It is the story of how our good God enters our world of evil and wickedness and triumphs over it by washing away our sin. It is the story of the God of glory who gifts us with the beauty of redemption. So if you want to change the world here today, if you want to change the world, let me encourage you to live out the gospel. Live out the truth. Live out the good. Live out the beautiful, which means that you will spend the rest of your life standing firm in the faith. You will spend the rest of your life walking in and growing in gospel love. And you will spend the rest of your life living for the glory of God in the hopes that you will leave the world a better place than the one that you found. And the good news of the gospel is that though we have forsaken the true and the good and the beautiful, our Savior is one who enters into our world of falsehood, wickedness, and ugliness in order to redeem it. The beauty of the gospel is that we have a Savior who renews, he restores, and he redeems. He takes the ugly and makes it new. How else do you explain the cross? If you and I were to get in a time machine, which would be cool, um, you get a time machine. If we were to go, say, uh, uh, 50 BC, right? and, and we were to just walk around Rome with our cell phones, and they would be freaked out about that, and we were to do our, our little man-on-the-street interviews, and we would say, uh, what do you think about crucifixion? And they would say things like, oh, man, crucifixion is rough. Only the worst of the worst there. In fact, it's mostly slaves, rebels, and, 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 and treasonous enemies that go there. Uh, we, we, that, that, the last thing you want is to die by crucifixion. It's horrendous. In fact, we know as historians that there's very few references to, the, to a crucifixion outside of the Bible. Not because it didn't happen, but because uh, they tell us it was so shameful you dare not speak of the practice. It was reserved for the, for the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. And then what if you went up to those Romans and said, guess what? In a hundred years, people are going to go walk around and give the sign of the cross as a sign of their faith. And in the years after that, they're, they're going to start carving crosses and hanging them around their necks and hanging them up in their, their, their houses. They would think you're crazy. Jew and Gentile would think you're mad with that sort of stuff. But how else do you explain this? How is it that we can view an instrument of torture and injustice and imperial power against the weak and the oppressed as an image worthy of honor, as an image to remind us of grace? How is that possible? Because through the gospel, Christ comes to renew, to restore, and to redeem. It is the story of every sinner that comes to Christ. Having rejected the true, having been confused on the good, and therefore cannot function in the beautiful. We come to Christ and he makes us all new. Years ago, there was an artist who went to a garage sale, yard sale from what we called it growing up. None of us had garages. And um, he bought a painting for $7. Now, I just want to pause you there. This is not a story where, come to find out, it was a Rembrandt worth $20 million. Uh, uh, that story's been told a thousand times. Still trying to find my rim rent at someone's garage. Um, no, this painting, he paid $7 for it because it was worth seven bucks, nothing. He took it to a studio and he thought, we, we can do something with this. And he, he, he started to, he stripped the frame off of it, got it down to the canvas, and he just completely redid the entire painting. 
I went to take it to his gallery where he sells all of his artwork. And he has basically two rooms. He has the main room where he's painting cell for $25,000. I want that job. And, and so he, 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 he could put it there. And those paintings sell fine. Besides, he, it's a good return. You pay $7 after a little bit of supplies. You can sell for $25,000. That's a pretty good investment. He says, no, 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 no. I, I think I'd get more out of this. He has a separate room sort of in the back over in the corner. And this is where he puts his most expensive paintings. And here he sells paintings for, for starting at $100,000 up to a million dollars. And so he, he and in this room are, are special lights that, that come down right on the painting so that you can see every little uh, design, every little brush stroke, every little bit of, of detail in it. And he puts the little crowd control rope around it so that you don't get too close to it because this thing has value to it. And he put a, a six, seven figure uh, 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 price tag on it and sold the thing. Now, how do you explain how something worth $7 can suddenly be worth $100, $200, whatever thousand dollars? How do you explain that? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? What changed was the artist got his, got his hands on it. So long as that painting stayed in that person's garage, it was always and forever would be $7. But with the work of the right artist, it's invaluable. The same is true for you and me. With the work of a redeemer who restores and renews and redeems sinners like you and me. Then we can grasp the beautiful. The beautiful in your life right now is possible. The beautiful in being late for class is possible right now. The beauty in your family and your future marriages your home life is possible for one simple reason. Because we come before the throne of the God who is true, the God who is good, and the God who is gloriously beautiful. Well, I don't want to make it that late for class. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to...